The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello and welcome to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel. I'm the host for this podcast and today's episode is episode number 272. We are in our sixth year of weekly podcasting and we sincerely hope that for those of you who listen, we have given you education, we've given you hope, and we've made it very clear that help is available no matter whether you are addicted, whether you're in recovery, or whether you have a loved one or a friend who is addicted. So one thing I want to remind you is to please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a good review so that other people can find us. And also uh, go to our YouTube channel and check out our videos that we have up there, subscribe to that channel, and give us a thumbs up. Today we have an interview with Jeffrey B. Simon. He is a legal commentator and founding partner of Simon Greenstone Panettiere PC, ranked as one of the top 10 personal injury attorneys within America, and he is co-chair of the National Opioid Litigation Conference. Mr. Simon is focused on bringing crucial legal consumer protection and public health issues to the forefront for mainstream audiences. Jeffrey currently serves as chair of the Texas Opioid MDL Plaintiffs Steering Committee, a group that seeks to hold drug manufacturers and other supply chain corporations responsible for their role in creating and prolonging the opioid epidemic in Texas. In 2017, he filed the state's first opioid-related lawsuit against drug manufacturers and supply chain corporations on behalf of a governmental body. I definitely want to hear more about this. I think the drug companies are definitely a good target in this pandemic. So without further ado, let's talk to Jeffrey B. Simon. Mr. Jeffrey B. Simon, thank you so much for being willing to be on the podcast today and talking to us because I am super looking forward to your perspective. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. So tell me, how did you get started in law? Where did you grow up? Kind of what led you down the path that you are on now? Sure. I grew up in Fort Worth, Texas. Um, I'm the son and grandson and great-grandson of lawyers. Uh, none of that initially led me to believe that I wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, I initially just going to uh, my father's law office as a kid, which looked a lot like the set of Mad Men in the 1970s. I thought, mm. I thought lawyers just basically went to a place that had, you know, orange furniture and smoked cigarettes. But um, I, I graduated from Colgate University uh, in upstate New York, where I went because I wanted to see a different part of the world. And I was a tennis player. And you know, I found a school small enough where even I could play for them. And, and I uh, applied to law school really just to further my education. And uh, during the first year of my law school experience, which was at the University of Texas in Austin, uh, the mock trial competitions began where first year law students would uh, try lawsuits against each other uh, in uh, an organized setting just for them. And I loved it. And I said, you know, this is what I want to do. I want to be in the business of representing people uh, uh, who are in distress or conflict as a result of uh, having their rights violated. And so I pursued uh, clerkships. That is, after my second year of law school in the summer, uh, it was traditional back then, and it really still is, uh, to try to work for law firms 
and get a sense of what they do and determine whether or not it would be the right fit for you. And of course, they determine whether or not they're hiring, and if so, whether they'll offer you a job. And um, I worked for a defense firm, and I worked for a plaintiff's firm, and uh, it became very clear to me. Uh, I'm a plaintiff's lawyer, just like I thought I was from the mock trial competitions. And they offered me a job, and I took it. And very early in my career, which is very rare now, it was certainly rare then, but it is even more rare now, I got in the courtroom a lot. I got to try a lot of lawsuits, do a lot of depositions, argue a lot of hearings. And it's through that experience that I realized, okay, this is what I'm going to do for my professional career. And I've been doing that now for 30 years. I love it. And you do, you mainly only practiced in Texas, right? No, I practice all over the country. I'm oh. licensed in Texas, California, and New York. Uh, and I've tried cases in scores of of, of American states and cities. Okay, so prior to getting involved in the whole opioid manufacturer arena, what what was your what what did you work on? Just as an example. Sure, um, I have represented people who experience either devastating injuries or the families of people who are killed as a result of uh, environmental toxins unsafe workplaces, or defective products. And uh, my firm, Simon Greenstone Panettiere, uh, has been representing uh, both as a firm, but then if you take the collective of the lawyers and their experience, uh, we have been representing uh, people, uh, particularly uh, people with the disease malignant mesothelioma or who have died from malignant mesothelioma as a result of asbestos exposure and our collective experience in doing that is well well over 200 years in terms of, of lawyer experience. Um, I myself have been doing that work for 30 years. Uh, and additionally, um, I have represented uh, people who have suffered devastating injuries in their workplaces of many different descriptions, um, as well as many, many people um, who have either fallen ill or been killed by other defective products or bad prescription drugs. Got it. Uh, and, and the last thing you said, the bad prescription drugs, that would lead us into presumably how you got involved in the uh, not just the manufacturers, but also I believe the distributors of opioids. Is that, would that be correct to say that? Right. So I have a long history uh, on the plaintiff side in working up and trying what we call complex cases. That is cases which involve many numbers of uh, individuals who claim to have been injured by a company or a group of companies in a very similar way. And in opioid litigation, the central claim is that on behalf of government entities, which is who I represent, counties and cities, that they have had to expend an enormous amount of money of public resources and social services as a result of opioid-related public health crises and crime caused by the oversupply of opioid drugs, specifically because manufacturers and distributors and retail pharmacies 
deceptively promoted opioids as safer or more effective than they really are, encouraged the overprescribing of opioids, even from good faith doctors, and moreover, failed to maintain effective systems of control over the glut of opioids they were pouring into those communities. And so that was a natural fit for me insofar as I have a lot of experience in those kinds of cases, big macroeconomic issues that affect many people. And uh, so I was asked uh, by uh, some counties in the state of Texas uh, if I would uh, apply, uh, file, uh, or and submit, I should say, uh, an application for consideration to represent them in these matters, they were considering filing, and many different law firms uh, submitted this, you know, request for proposal. And uh, I got hired by several of them. And then, you know, county officials talk, right? I've hired Simon Greenstone and Panettiere. You should talk to them. One thing led to another, and uh, my firm represents more counties in the state of Texas in opioid litigation than any other. Uh, and in that role, we also work very collaboratively with other plaintiffs firms who represent other counties and other communities in the state of Texas. Awesome. I mean, thank you for fighting the good fight. Thank you. You know, you're, you're making a difference. And I think it's, it's good that you represent so many different counties because one of the thoughts that I had as you were talking is like, you're going up against some really big guns when you do this. Some There's the a lot of money. Sure. I mean, pharmaceutical companies have a lot of money, which is why today we have drugs being advertised on television. But we won't get me started on that. That's for your second chapter, Jeffrey. Should right. you choose to accept that you can go after the fact that they should not be um, advertised on television, I digress. It, uh, also, a couple of things I thought of when you were talking is I know that there was some sort of settlement here in the state of Florida with Walgreens for prescribing opioids. You know, one of the things that I was thinking also, you know, I try to relate a lot of what you talk about to some of the things that we've already learned on the podcast. And we had an independent filmmaker talk to us about the, really the dumping of billions of opioids into the state of West Virginia. And the fact that the distributor McKesson Pharmaceuticals was the primary um, company that was responsible for that. So, you know, you, you, what you're doing is like super important, obviously. Have you learned anything that maybe surprised you or, you know, yeah, surprised you in, in going down this road with the pharmaceutical companies? How much time do you have? Uh, um, as much as you want. Yeah. <laughs> a, a lot of things shocked the conscience uh, that we learned through uh, the course of uh, the discovery period of, uh, of our cases. I think the one that stands out the most to me, if I'm just going to say, I just can't actually believe that's true, but in fact it is true, there are two of them. One is the manufacturers. One would think that if a manufacturer is going to aggressively promote an addictive drug to physicians, for the specific purpose of trying to persuade them to prescribe as much of their addictive drug to as many patients for as many reasons as they can possibly persuade that physician to do, which is exactly what 
the marketing effort was of many, especially brand opioid manufacturers for many years, that they would use sales representatives who actually knew something about medicine, science, pharmacology, or addiction. In other words, if you are going to try to persuade doctors to ubiquitously prescribe controlled substances, controlled specifically because of their high propensity to induce psychological or physical dependence. At the very least, you would use salespeople who are steeped in that relevant subject matter. But wouldn't you bring in a point of ethics if you did that? Wouldn't those (laughs) salespeople have some sort of ethical problem with that? And so, you know, they did exactly the opposite as a rule. As a rule, sales representatives were people whose specialty was in selling, period. They could have been selling anything. That's what they're good at. And they sold many other non-controlled substances very successfully at some other point in time, which is how they got this job, proof that they performed. They often were 20-somethings, freshly out of college, pretty women and handsome men who developed relationships with doctors and their staff, right, who avoided the subject of addiction as much as possible, not that they knew anything about it anyway, right? Moreover, I was shocked that their compensation was directly tied to how many opioid prescriptions they could induce through their sales efforts and the quantity of the dosages of the opioid prescriptions they could induce through their sales efforts. So that literally sales representatives made more money if they sold more opioids and higher dosages than if they didn't. And that we are talking about controlled substances that is the subject of that sales scheme. I was shocked by that. The other thing that I was shocked by was the cavalierness of certain wholesale distributors over their duties to actually control the overflow of opioids out of their facilities and into retail pharmacies to then be dispensed to patients. Just like any DEA registrant, a wholesale distributor of opioids is required under law to maintain effective systems of control against diversion. What that means is they have to monitor each and every order for a controlled substance, including opioid, to determine whether or not there is or is not something suspicious about that order. If that order is higher than usual in terms of the quantity of opioids or other controlled substances which are being ordered by the pharmacy, if that order is deviating in pattern from the sort of historical ordering track record of a pharmacy customer, Right. If if that order appears to uh, coalesce around more cash purchases for controlled substances in that pharmacy, as opposed to the use of 
systems which would allow insurance tracking, which is something specifically a wholesale distributor is required to know about the transactional history of a pharmacy that it services. Then they have to conduct a duly diligent investigation to ensure that that order is not in fact suspicious for diversion. And unless and until they determine through an adequate investigation that that order is not suspicious, they cannot ship it. Not only did some of America's largest wholesale distributors of opioids for years disregard the obligation to do those things, and they just shipped opioids in large volumes and high dosages, ignoring every red flag that they were suspicious. I was shocked to see that certain wholesale distributors deliberately rigged their systems to avoid identifying suspicious orders so that all of these other regulatory obligations wouldn't be triggered and they wouldn't wind up having to do an investigation and they could you know, avoid having to, to halt shipment of the order. Wow. The, the, the effort that went into not complying with laws that are necessary to avoid the very ep epidemic that we have related to opioids shocked me anyway. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com or call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. Sometimes the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. And why do you think that they did that? For money. Money. It's for all profit. about sure. the money. I well, mean, wholesale distribution is a volume-driven business. It costs the same amount of money to uh, send uh, you know, a semi-trailer uh, that's one-third full of opioids as it does one that is full to the brim. Moreover, the more volume that a wholesale distributor can ship of a manufacturer's drugs, the better price they get. And moreover, the more opportunity to sell a suite of services to the manufacturer, which include co-promotion of the drugs, right? And other kinds of services that wholesale distributors provide in assisting manufacturers in marketing their drugs. Moreover. Fascinating. Wholesale you know, You know what you have to do, Jeffrey, and I think you know this, and I applaud you for this, is you have to confront 
pure and total evil. I'm not trying to be like a moralist or anything, but to but the marketing tactics that some of the manufacturers have employed, it's it's just evil to do something like that just purely for the money. I'm sorry. I'm going to call a spade a spade and I'm going to say it's evil. Can you give us um give us some of the wins that you've had on in in these cases that you've been doing? I imagine they take a long time. So, um when we filed the cases, the first thing we heard from the lawyers who represent the defendants is the Texas Supreme Court is never going to let you proceed with these cases. It's too conservative. It's too pro-business. These cases are going nowhere. Famous last words. Right. Because they filed motions to dismiss the cases, claiming that Texas law doesn't recognize the theories of recovery that we asserted on behalf of our clients for the conduct that we allege they engaged in. At the trial court, the trial court judge denied those motions to dismiss. The defendants then filed a writ of mandamus to the Court of Appeals, essentially emergency relief, asking the trial court to reverse those rulings. They lost there. They then filed them to the Texas Supreme Court, who denied their writ as well. So we engaged in continuing uh, discovery, that is prosecution of the case, where we obtained uh, information in order to turn our, our good faith allegations into evidentiary proof. And it became clear to the defendants that we, I believe, uh, had established facts that a jury would take a dim view of. And they settled. Six out of the seven uh, defendants uh, in what I'll just call phase one of the case settled. And the result of it was, is that we obtained on behalf of our clients, as well as on behalf of all political subdivisions in Texas, that is all counties and cities, all hospital districts, and the state of Texas itself, a settlement for $1.85 billion, $1.75 billion in cash, 775, excuse me, $1.75 $5 billion and $75 million in Narcan, the life-saving drug that reverses opioid overdoses when administered in time. And that money will be used to save lives of people who have overdosed on opioids so that we can then get them into treatment, so that we can then get them into recovery. And it will provide family and social services for them while they are in treatment it will allow us to provide the resources to not only save lives, but repair families, restore hope, and rebuild community. And we're very proud of that, but it is only the beginning because there are other corporations in the opioid supply chain who are also responsible for what happened. And in the Dallas County case, uh, which I'm the co-lead counsel in, uh, we are bringing more corporations into the case, and we're literally in that process as we speak. I, I think you're a rock star. I, I mean, I know you work with other people, but I just think that you are a rock star in terms of what you are doing. And when you Thank say you. it's only the beginning, there's 49 other states who hopefully will take a page out of your book 
and start their own process within their own states because um, you know, obviously Texas is not the only state in the country that's been affected by this. I'm sure some states have already done that, but I am really hoping that every other one of the 49 remaining do the same thing that you're doing. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, uh, to, 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 be, to be fair, although we're very proud of the work we've done in Texas, uh, there are many other states uh, where uh, lawyers are doing the same work on behalf of the residents of their state. But there are other states which, in my opinion, have been very lax in representing uh, their constituents for uh, holding drug companies that are responsible for the opioid-related public health crisis in their state accountable. And I I can give you specific examples. You mentioned the state of Florida. The state of Florida has done a terrific job, as has the state of New York, whereas the state of Oregon uh, does not have the kind of uh, forward-facing effort to hold all corporate supply chain companies that, that bear liability accountable. It just depends on the state and the leadership within it. Well, Oregon's forward-facing in terms of legalizing drugs, so there you go. <laughs> Another point we won't get into. Um, I, sorry, I lost my train of thought there just for a second, but I... I I just so admire everything that you're doing. Oh, I know what it was. It was just going to be an editorial comment. I was born in Fort Worth, Texas, and these um, corporations greatly underestimated the spirit of Texas. I'm just saying that. And you don't mess with Texas. And I just think that they kind of missed that, um, that phrase or that saying. So tell us a little bit about your podcast. What are you doing on your podcast there? Well, first of all, I didn't realize that you were a sister Cowtowner, I am. right? I'm born and raised in Fort Worth myself, so it's a pleasure to get to know somebody from home. Uh, so I'm obviously very passionate about the work we're doing in, uh, in opioid litigation. And although all my clients are important to me, uh, you know, there is a transformation every now and again, if you're lucky enough to get to do enough, where the work you're doing becomes a part of your soul as much as a part of your mind. And for me, the work we're doing in opioid litigation has done that. The people that I have talked to who uh, suffer from opioid addiction and are fighting for their lives, their family members, the people who have dedicated themselves to opioid harm reduction because they've lost someone uh, to opioid uh, overdose, Uh, the first responders, that is, of course, you know, the emergency medical technicians and, you know, other first responding healthcare providers, law enforcement, Um, the dedicated public servants in, in elected office who are so focused on trying to bring um, opioid harm reduction and the resources for it into their communities. Um, the people who treat people for, with, with opioid addiction. Uh, the, the new drug czar, Dr. Earl Gupta, who was an expert in our case and who I you know, videotaped a deposition over three days, having him literally describe the nature of the opioid epidemic in America and what he planned to do about it. 
and the privilege that I got to be able to get to know him and to bring forth that kind of testimony. Um, people like you, people mm -hmm. like your husband, um, the people who suffer from chronic pain that is very real, who themselves in many instances are casualties of the opioid epidemic, if not from opioid addiction themselves, but the fact that they can't get adequate pain treatment now, sometimes, sometimes because doctors won't prescribe them opioids, even in the narrow circumstances in which they're absolutely appropriate. Getting to know all of those people over the course of the last several years affected me in a way where I no longer thought of it as work I'm doing, but part of my life's work. And I have been interested for a very long time in trying to inform the public about the work of trial lawyers in the civil justice system to provide public health resources for public health harms, to make products safer, to clean up environments that make people sick. And I just decided I'm going to do it in relation to the work that we're doing uh, in to deal with the opioid crisis. And I had to choose a platform, chose a podcast, and it has been one of the most personally rewarding endeavors I've ever engaged in. I absolutely love it. I'm never going to stop, irrespective of whether I find it a big audience or only a small one. I think uh, it will because, grow. Because I, be, I believe that um, it is worth doing just for the doing, if that makes sense. Listen, you're preaching to the choir. I mean, as as we mentioned before, you know, we started the interview, Steve and I don't have children addicted or family members addicted, but you cannot live in this country today and say that you are not affected by the by the drug addiction pandemic. You can't say that. And you also can't say that you don't need to take any responsibility for it. And that's why we started this podcast and are in our sixth year. So we are on the same page, you and and we are on the same page, Jeffrey. Say the name of your podcast so people can find it. The podcast is Outside Council, and it can be found on virtually every major platform in which podcasts stream, whether it's Apple or Google or iHeartRadio or Spotify uh, or Audible. Uh, you know, I, I appreciate very much your, your comment that you, you and your husband share uh, the same mission. And I love the name of your podcast, The Addiction Podcast, because one of the things that motivates me tremendously is to inform the public that may not know it, that the opioid epidemic is not an epidemic of abuse. It is an epidemic of the disease of addiction. And that more often than not, abuse is a symptom of addiction rather than the cause of it. These are inherently addictive drugs. And many people in America have become addicted to prescription opioids, taking them as prescribed for chronic pain. And when they get cut off, which certainly happens, many of them turn to heroin because the opioid withdrawal symptoms are simply too overwhelming. Yep. And 
making people understand that blaming people suffering from addiction for the epidemic, as opposed to the conduct of the industry which caused it and fueled it, just feeds their narrative rather than the truth. That's correct. And that we can't fix this epidemic unless we can agree upon what is scientifically and empirically its root cause, addiction, not bad people who take right. opioids. Uh, you're absolutely right. You are absolutely right. And, you know, it used to be, you know, drug addicts would get arrested because they had illegal substances and they're not the ones who should be arrested. <laughs> it's the people that you're prosecuting, if I may right. say. So what it, so you've got other counties and you're going to work in Texas. I was just going to recommend that you probably need to just go to every other state and advise them on the best way to go about this. But I'm kind of making making plans for you. So what are your plans going forward? I know you're going to grow your podcast, but tell us the direction you're going. Well, I'm going to continue work in opioid litigation, and I do have clients in other states. I and my co-counsel represent most of the litigating counties and cities in opioid litigation in the state of Montana. And, and uh, uh, I and co-counsel represent uh, a county in the state of Missouri. So I'm going to continue doing that work. But what I'm going to do is amplify and, and broaden the scope of what I am trying to inform the public through my podcast and public speaking engagements and things that I write about the fact that your fundamental constitutional right to trial by jury is being taken away from you every day by big businesses, including but not limited to the drug companies that we've talked about in opioid litigation, that consumer rights and employee rights are dying in America as a result of forced arbitration, which is embedded in virtually every consumer contract for the purchase of any consumer product that anybody engages in, whether it is a cell phone, the lease of a car, the opening of a bank account, the obtaining of a credit card. And that the only way we were able with respect to the opioid epidemic to hold drug companies accountable was with the threat of trial by jury, mm. which if it had not existed, we would have not been able to accomplish. And these resources for harm reduction would not be available. And yet in many other sectors of American life where consumers are being harmed by defective products or corporate misconduct or employer mistreatment, there's nothing you can do about it because you've signed your rights away, not even knowing. And that if I can give first voice to the nature of that problem and collectively help put together a call to action uh, in terms of first awareness and then how you vote. I'm going to do that. I don't care whether you're politically conservative or politically progressive or not political at all. Imagine if one of your fundamental Bill of Rights guarantees that you think is really important, freedom of speech, right? The right to purchase a, a, a firearm was signed away every time you purchased a product online. How you'd feel about that. If you understood it going in, you wouldn't do it. 
That's exactly what happens with the Seventh Amendment. Yeah. You give away your right to trial by jury if the product you buy is defective or the company breaches the, the purchase or lease agreement that you sign. There's nothing you can do about it in the civil justice system anymore. And that is an abuse that has to stop that I'm going to try to uh, highlight and really bring to life. I love it. I am going out of my way to make myself available to the public. So if there is a, a method uh, and an interest in having uh, me talk about these issues uh, in, in, in a public uh, format, uh, I am interested. Awesome. Jeffrey, thank you so much. Thank you so much for everything that you're doing. You are a rock star. You are a freedom fighter. You are fighting in the arena where a lot of us can't fight and you're winning. And I think that's huge. Well, you're kinder than I deserve, but the admiration is mutual. Thank you for the work you're doing. And thank you for giving me an opportunity to talk about what I'm doing. You are most welcome. Okay, there is a gentleman who is really um, kicking butt and taking names, if I can say that here on the podcast. He's going after the source of this whole opioid-fueled pandemic. I mean, now we've gone into fentanyl and, you know, it's just, that, it's just getting worse from there. Um, not to mention the tobacco companies and vaping, but anyway, he is going after the source of the opioid epidemic and holding them accountable. And I'm, I'm just honored that he was willing to talk to us today. I hope it helps you. And if you want to reach him, the, his website is Jeffrey B. Simon. Dot com and Jeffrey is J E F F R E Y be like boy Simon.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back again with another interview next week. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.